All right, we start, as I said earlier, we start a new series today on Galatians. Galatians is a pretty powerful little book of the Bible. It's certainly not the longest book. It's six chapters long, uh, but it's powerful. Tim Keller says that Galatians has dynamite in it. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Galatians, wrote this. Not many books have made such a lasting impression on man's mind as the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, nor have many done so much to shape the history of the Western world. I mean, that's, that's saying a lot for a, a small book of the Bible that's had that much influence. We know that it's been shown to be instrumental in the lives of men like John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist denomination. Even if you don't agree with all of their theology, the reality is, is that God has used them in a big way in church history. Uh, not just them. John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Huge book, still affects many people's lives today. This book of Galatians affected his life in a deep and meaningful way because as he was, as in his non-believing life, he was reprobate. I mean, he, he was lost and he was dirty and sinful. And he recognized that. Galatians freed him of the load of guilt that he carried because of his sin. Martin Luther, maybe you've heard of Martin Luther. He is, uh, happens to be one of the most influential people in the Protestant faith because he was instrumental in beginning the Protestant Reformation. It was Galatians. He actually has a commentary, and, and our English commentaries in most cases are pared down or, or slightly, or quite a bit smaller than what his original writings on it. He lectured 41 different lectures on the book of Galatians. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to make 24 weeks happen because it, it's a short book. He, for 41 different lectures, he spoke on the book of Galatians. It's big. And the thoughts and the truths that were revealed inside of it were the very truths that shaped and led him to stand up and call for reformation within the church. It's, a, it's big. And, and so I have no doubt that as we begin this journey, as we step into this, that I don't think that we're going to be left wanting. You're going to have an opportunity to hear about it preached. You're going to be able to gather in community groups and talk about what you're learning in it and to be challenged in it a little more intimately. But also the encouragement or the challenge is that you begin memorizing it and meditating it on it and thinking about it all through the week. So that as you come and hear me preach, this is not the first time that you've heard these verses read and that the Holy Spirit has already begun to do a work in your life through this truth. Because truly God's Word, God's Word has the power. I, I pray every week that He uses me as a vessel. I pray consistently and constantly that, that I'm able to proclaim His truths in a way that you can hear them, receive them, and apply them. But truly, His Word, His Word has power. I believe the book is especially relevant to us today because the things that the Galatians were dealing with were not just cultural. The struggles that they were facing were not just a cultural struggle. Really what they dealt with was something that we all deal with as a result of sinful natures that we live with. You see, what had happened is... Well, let me, let me step back. Let me just say it like this. The reason that Paul wrote this letter is because they had begun to think that they had to, in some way build a religion that 
added to the gospel that he had preached to them. Since the very beginning, since the very fall of man and woman into sin, since the moment that they ate the fruit, this has become a struggle for us. It's it's a struggle for us because in some way, and not everyone in the world cares about this, but people have consistently and constantly throughout history developed religions seeking to find a way to God. And seeking to build rituals or order their life in such a way that they find God's acceptance and His approval. But the Bible teaches us, Galatians teaches us, that that's weak. And truly what it does is not give us the freedom that is available in Christ, but enslave us to our own efforts and our own works. See, the book of Galatians is really not just about the gospel although it's a primary part of it. You're going to hear Paul defend his own identity, but that's not just what it's about. It's a call to freedom. It's a fight for freedom, a life of freedom, not based on the American ideals of freedom, but the freedom that comes in knowing Christ, our Savior, God, our Creator, and living in light of their power and by their power and to their and, and and to them or directed towards them. So here's here's the story of Galatia. Let's just, let's just hear the story behind it before we jump into the verses for today. Paul was a missionary. He's converted in an amazing way. I don't think any of us have a story that really matches Paul. If you were on the road to Damascus and God showed yourself to showed himself to you, let's anybody have that? None of us really, I mean, some of us have some pretty amazing stories. I feel like I have a good story to tell because I went into a church one morning, lost, and in the middle of that, God opened my eyes, called me to repentance, and when I left, I could definitely see a stark difference in who I was. Now, not everybody has that story. I get it. I understand. Some of you have have walked along your life, and, and, and it's been a process, and God slowly chipped away at your sinful perspectives, revealed His truth, and you've come to a place where you now believe. I get it. I understand. Everybody's story is different. But I can tell you, I don't think anyone in the world has ever had a story like Paul's, where he's walking along on his way to destroy the church, the people that were following Jesus, and Jesus shows up and shows Himself to Paul, appears to him, and says, What are you doing? You don't get it. Boom. Here's the truth. Now you deal with it. And he sends him into Damascus. And then he sends a guy in behind to kind of follow up on what's happened and to, to, to teach Paul and to, and to encourage him. So Ananias, Ananias, God comes to Ananias and Ananias is like, God, that's the guy that's killing people. Why would you send me to him? God's like, hey, he's mine. You go and see him. So Ananias goes and sees him prays for him, something like scales falls off of his eyes. And it teaches us in the book of Acts that he immediately gets up and begins to preach the gospel. It's a crazy story. It's beyond my imagination to think that a guy would be changed that radically that fast, but it's not beyond God's power. God's big enough to really make that happen. He's big enough to do it. 
So Paul, being that new believer, that new Christian, he begins to deal with this and, and, and immediately begins to, to share and move around and go places. And one of the first things he does is, well, not one of the first things, it is actually after a period of time, he goes on his first missionary journey. And that missionary journey leads him to a city, an area called Galatia. And as he's traveling, he comes into this area called Galatia and he preaches in cities like Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. I think there's a map probably behind me right now so that you can kind of get a, a visual of what's going on. As he goes into these cities, he goes to where people are gathered. He goes to the Jewish synagogues, and he begins to preach in such a way. In fact, the book of Acts tells us he speaks in such a way that many people believe. He was very convincing. He spoke with authority. He spoke with power. And he sees people converted to the faith, become followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever had someone believe in Jesus after you were the one that shared with them. But having had that experience, I can tell you there is a special concern or care for them like you don't care maybe for other people. Not that you don't care for other believers, but there's something special that happens when you lead someone to the faith. There's a concern for them, almost like a parent and a child. Maybe not quite the same, but, but, but similar. And so Paul goes through these cities and begins to see these churches developed. And he goes back through them on the way back through and, and continues to teach. I mean, it was, it's what he did. He goes back home to Antioch, which is where he was staying, and he's there. And he's hanging out, and he gets word that someone has come into Galatia, to the cities that he preached the gospel in, and they are trying to undermine and twist the teachings that he's been proclaiming. Now, I want you to get, I just want you to feel this for just a second. I want you to think about what Paul might experience in that moment. For those of you that are parents, you can identify it with this. For those of you that just, just have someone you care deeply about, consider how you would feel if someone came in and did damage to them and hurt them in some way. I mean, imagine the emotion and the intensity and the sense of urgency that Paul begins to feel and deal with as he hears that people, these, these people that are called Judaizers, they come in and they begin to twist and undermine Paul's teaching. Consider it. I think probably he was a little upset and ready to do some, and, and, and ready to get some things done. I think he was serious and, and concerned. I don't think he sat down to write this letter and was like haphazardly just throwing the words on the paper, I think he was seriously considering and praying and, and, and concerned for these people. So he begins to write. And this is what he says. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And a lot of times I think people come to these introductions to these letters. That's really going to be the focus, uh, focal passage for today. I think people come to these introductions and they think, well, it's just an introduction. You know, he's really kind of starting it out and just getting things going. It's, it's kind of like our letters. You know, when we start out our letters, we dear so-and-so. 
And we don't even think about it. I mean, when we say dear so-and-so, we're not even thinking that we really care or don't care. I mean, some people may be a little more conscious of it than I am. But I just write it down just because that's what we do. Right? Paul sits down and he does start the letter in a way that's typical for the day. But I don't think he's just simply writing these words just because this is the way we do it. I think he's writing with intensity and a sense of urgency and a great sense of concern. But as we look at this passage today, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see Paul's identity. I want you to see where he builds that from and where he gains that, that sense of identity. I want you to see Paul's authority. I want you to see Paul's message. And I want you to see Paul's uh, motivation. I want you to get this and I want you to see it because what Paul is beginning to write in this introduction really is what he's about to pour out for the next six chapters. Everything he's got to say and that he's going to say in greater detail in the coming chapters is all wrapped up right here in these verses. Let's start with Paul's identity. The letter opens immediately. Paul's like, hey, I'm the author. I'm the one writing it. But how does he identify himself? He says, Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. Paul is an apostle. He is an apostle with a capital A. Understand, there's going to be a distinction. There is a distinction He's an apostle with a capital A, meaning that he's not sent by men. He's sent by Jesus Christ himself. Let me, let me help you see the distinction. In our day and age, we still recognize that there's a role of apostleship in the church. But these people who carry this gift and have this gift of apostleship are typically sent by people. They are sent into the world to start churches, to, to spread the faith, to go and, and go places where maybe other people aren't going. But they're still sent by men. Amy and I went through a process. When we joined the Acts 29 network, we're part of the Acts 29 network. When we joined the Acts 29 network, we had to go through a process to be tested and approved by that network to, be, to determine if we could plant a church as a part of that network. We go through the process and there was a day when they sent me an email, and it really, what it really felt like was this. Neil. I mean, because honestly, what we went through to get to that point, I felt like I'd just been knighted when I got the word that we were approved. That's not really that probably. Well, maybe it's a bigger deal than I want to say. But at any rate, that's the thing, is that they were, get, they were giving us approval to, to, to go and carry their name and say we're an Acts 29 church. To say that we're a part of this network, to plant with that, with that authority. But they sent us. When we went to the leadership of our, our, the church that we stepped out of and we talked to them about going and planting a church. And they said, yeah, we see it in you. Go do it. We'll pray for you. Go plant a church. In a sense, they sent us to plant a church. And so we become apostolic with a little a, little a apostle. Paul is different. Paul is an apostle with a capital A. It's a special function, a special role within the church that starts at the very source, Jesus Christ himself. Everything in our culture, everything in our creation, everything in our perspective that we can see and hold on to has a beginning and will have an ending. It's finite. It's limited. At one point it wasn't, and then at some point in time it was. The same is true with our faith. 
It didn't just appear. I mean, it, it just hasn't always been. It, it hasn't always existed. The gospel and what comes from it had a beginning and a starting point. The source is Jesus. And so as Jesus stands in and walks the face of the earth and stands and teaches with authority and performs miracles, he becomes that source from which the gospel flows. And so he begins to pick people. I want you to help form my church. I want you to help form my church. He does that with 12 guys. One of them falls away, becomes a traitor. The church stands up and they replace that person. And then Jesus appears to Paul and says, you're mine to go and spread my word. See, Jesus or, or Paul is being sent not by men, but by the very source and power that promotes the gospel. That's the source of the gospel. He's an apostle with a capital A. He fills a function of the church that no one else will ever fill. We do not need to continue to build the foundation. The foundation has been laid. Jesus, the cornerstone. Paul writes about this in Ephesians. Jesus, the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, solidifies the work that was to be done, and everything else is built upon that foundation. That's Paul. That's his identity, or at least the beginning of it. But Paul, not being one that I think is completely governed by a task, Paul's identity is not totally tied up in that. See, Paul... His identity is not based in the task at hand, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't stop and say, I'm an apostle sent by Jesus. Just get me as an apostle and, and it'll be okay. You see, he goes further and he begins to explain the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and that adds weight to the fact that, that Paul's not just building this idea. I'm an apostle sent from Jesus and so you're going to have to listen to me because that's who I am. You see, he goes further. He says, I am who I am because of Jesus I am who I am because of who Jesus is, what Jesus did. And we, I, I think we struggle with this at some level in our culture. I mean, I know when I introduce myself to people, this is, this is a common introduction. I'm Seth. I'm a pastor. I'm so-and-so, and this is what I do. And we identify ourselves with our vocations in many cases. When I was an aircraft mechanic, I was Seth the aircraft mechanic. When you introduce yourself to people, oftentimes you introduce yourself with this qualifier, and it's typically the task that you perform. I mean, that's what we do in our culture. But there's so many things that identify us beyond that. I'm not simply a pastor. I'm a father. I'm a husband. There's many different identities that I carry within this life. There's many different tasks that I perform within this life. But even those aren't what truly form me. I'm not who I am because I was an aircraft mechanic. I'm not who I am because I'm a pastor. I am who I am because one day, sitting in a church, I walked in, lost as a goose, just blind to everything that was truthful and honest and right, and God opened my eyes and said, Now, come to me, repent, trust in me. And I walked out different, converted, changed. I am who I am because of Jesus Christ. And that feeds into every other part of my life. Because of who I am, I'm the father 
that I am. Because of who I am in Christ. I am the husband that I am. Don't talk to Amy about how well I do. Sometimes I screw it up still. Because of who I am, I strive to be the pastor that I strive to be. But it starts with Jesus Christ. And that's where our identity needs to find its root. We are nothing apart from Him. We have no ability to truly make any change or difference without Him. Our identity must start with Jesus Christ and then feed into every other part of our life. And so Paul is an apostle with a capital A, not because he was just a smart dude that figured it out, but because Jesus showed up and Jesus called him and gave him a mission to do and gave him something to get done. Paul's identity, an apostle with a capital A, but not tied up to a task, but founded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We also see Paul's authority. It's almost difficult. I, I separated these two because I want you to see them, but, but one doesn't go by itself. Paul's authority is bound up in his identity in Christ. Paul's identity lends itself to authority. And authority is a, 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 it's a tricky thing. We like to have authority, but don't necessarily like to submit to authority. That's kind of our typical nature. That's the, the way we kind of live life. And it's not tangible. It's not something we can hold on to. It's not something we can grab, but it's a real thing that we have to deal with every day in our life. If you have a boss, if you go to work, even if you own the company, you work for someone. I mean, you have customers that you deal with. I, I When I left the vocation that I was in, I was an aircraft mechanic, but I managed the shop. And I had one guy in the food chain above me. He was the general manager of the repair station that, that I worked at. He was the president. He was the guy. He's the one that owned it, actually, as well. So, and for the most part, he, let me, he left me alone. I had to follow certain rules from him. But the people that I really answered to were the customers. I mean, I dealt with them on a daily basis. And so their authority, because it was their airplane, it was their money, and they were the ones I typically dealt with and submitted myself to and did the job that they asked me to do. Every, every, every person that has a boss submits at some level to that authority. But authority like that's limited. Because when you go home, you, you don't think about that authority in your life anymore. Unless maybe they have a drug program and so you don't do drugs because you don't want to get fired. So that, that authority may be extending into your personal life in some way. But for the most part, you go home and you're able to walk away from that authority and not have to worry about it, and you don't submit to it until the next morning you punch the clock, and all of a sudden you're working for that person again. Some authority goes further than that. Some authority, or for, let's say, for example, the federal government. The federal government has all kinds of rules that your bosses, or that you as a boss, have to follow. For example, if you're going to hire someone, they state that you have to identify them. You have to ensure they're a legal citizen, right? I mean, you, you legally cannot hire someone without making sure that that's the case or that they're legal to work in our, in our country. Now, here's the beauty of this authority. It only goes so far as people will really submit to it. Even though that the government has a, a farther reaching authority that affects us 
in our daily walk, in our daily life, everywhere we go, it's really limited in this, in this sense. If we decide not to listen to it or obey it, it's really worthless. It has no effect. And we know, with the example of identifying legal citizens and people who are legal to work, we know that that goes on all the time. That, that rule is broken all the time because there's plenty of illegal aliens working in our nation. We, we know that that occurs. I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem we face. So that authority is only really as good as the people who are deciding to submit to it. Now, here's the difference. Paul. When he comes to Iconium, or I'm sorry, to, yeah, to Iconium and Lystra and to Derby, when he walks into Galatia, he's walking in and he's preaching with an authority saying, this is the way it is. This is how it is. He's not debating with them. He's not asking permission for them to listen to him. He's speaking with authority. He's acting with authority. In fact, there's a story in Acts, in the book, uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 14. He is in Lystra. He walks in. He sees a man who's crippled from birth. He's not ever walked in his life. He looks at him and he says, stand up on your feet. He doesn't say, hey, would, would you want to walk? Would you, could I have your permission to heal you? He speaks and acts with authority. And the guy stands up and walks. Now, the book of Acts would actually tell you the story that it doesn't, he doesn't just stand up and stumble and fall like a one-year-old trying to learn to walk. Paul, in his words, stand up on your feet, not only healed his legs, but gave him the strength to stand and walk. Because had his, if his legs had never been used, they wouldn't have been strong enough to do it on their own. He was healed completely and given an ability that he didn't have before. And see, Paul acts with that authority, but his authority doesn't begin with him. Paul's authority is not his own, but was given to him by Jesus when he was sent by Jesus. You see, Paul was called to be an apostle with a capital A. He was called to go and, and make disciples. He was called to go and spread the word. And when Jesus gave him that job to do, he gave him the authority to go and do it. And so as he spoke... As he spoke and, and, and challenged people and spoke the truth, he spoke it with an authority that, that is all-inclusive. You see, it's not limited like the authority that we deem to, okay, I want to submit to that, but I don't like that, so I'm not going to listen to that. It's not that way. Because this authority really finds its source in Christ. This authority starts with Jesus. It starts with our Creator God who puts everything together, who maintains it all, who keeps the water where it's supposed to be, who put the ground where He wanted it, who separated the waters below from the waters above, who, who put the sun and the moon in the sky to do different jobs at different times of the day. And the God that then feeds the animals, the God that provides and sustains all of creation who has authority to say that black is black and blue is blue, who has authority to say that two plus two equals four, that God, the source not only of our gospel, but the source of all authority says, Jesus, now all authority is yours. And Jesus, at the end of his life, before he goes back into heaven, says, all authority is mine. I have been given all authority. And then he begins to command. And he bestows that authority on his followers. And he says, now you go. 
and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul comes into these cities with this authority, and now he's sitting down to write this letter not to debate with them or ask her, would you please just turn back? He writes this letter with authority that finds its root in his identity in Jesus Christ. There's really one person that had the authority to write this letter. It was Paul. Because Jesus called him to do a certain thing. Jesus sent him to do a certain thing. And Paul, not asking if it was okay or asking permission of anyone, stands with an authority that's been given to him by Jesus. He says, this is the truth of the gospel. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Submit yourself to it. And here's the thing about that authority. You see that God who put it all together, who sustains it all? We don't have to submit to His authority to make it real. We can rebel every day, all day long, forever and ever. But His authority is lasting. It's final. And as, as long as we rebel against it, as long as we run from it, as long as we hide from it, we're led to condemnation. We're led to slave. We're, we're, we're led to being enslaved to our own sins, to our own fallen perspectives. God's authority is ultimate, and there's nothing that escapes it. And so, as Paul stood, that's the authority that he stood with, given to him by Jesus when Jesus sent him to go. And the next thing we see begin to, to to develop and be shown in these passages is Paul's message. You see, as Paul opened this letter, he says, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, but by Jesus. And he doesn't stop at Jesus, but he connects Jesus to God. And he talks about Jesus' resurrection by God. And then he goes a little further and he says, Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, yeah, Jesus, who died for our sins, or, or gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age by the will of God the Father. And as he says that, he summarizes the Christian message. I mean, he puts the Christian message in a nutshell. Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection is what secures for us salvation. It's what makes Christianity able to be. It's what helps it or makes it exist. And so we know that he's already beginning to pour out his message. But in the way he does it, he helps us see that it's a message. Paul's message is a message of grace and peace. Now he starts the letter in a typical fashion. Paul. He identifies himself and then he says to the Galatians. It's normal for in that day to start a letter that way. It's probably a little more logical if you think about it because if we start a letter and it's more than one page, somebody's got to flip to the end of the letter to find out who they're reading from before they can even really begin reading the letter. It's kind of logical to put it all right there at the front. But he does something that's not typical for the day. He says, grace and peace to you. That became a Christian 
way, a way for Christians to open a letter. And actually, it's very common when you read through the Bible, this is the way the letters to the churches were, were written and, and were introduced. But I don't think it's like our introductions or our salutations in a letter. I don't think that he's just writing those words down because that's what he that's just what I do, so I'm going to write them down. I think that Paul probably had every intent to extend a blessing of grace and peace based on what? Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins by the will of God, our, our God and Father. I mean, think about this. This is big for us because really, grace and peace, they're actually the thing we need. We need God's grace. We need to experience His unmerited goodness. Why do we need it so badly? Why would the Galatians have needed it so desperately? Because apart from it, apart from His unmerited goodness, we deserve nothing from Him. And would get nothing from him. He must act out of this, this unmerited, undeserved goodness that exists within him so that we can gain anything or get anything from him. We need to have a peace with God, a, a relationship that is peaceful between us and God. But to experience peace with God, to be at rest with God, to be in relationship with God, we must first experience the grace of God. Because peace is a result of grace. And we definitely need both. Luther, in his commentary, wrote this. Grace remits sin. It removes sin. And peace quiets the conscience. Sin and conscience torment us, but Christ has overcome these fiends. Man, I love that language. He overcomes these fiends now and forever. Only Christians possess this victorious knowledge given from above. This is our faith and our, our trust wrapped up in a nutshell. Jesus Christ died and rose again. And in that, we are receiving God's grace. And, ex and He's through His grace, extending His peace, quieting our conscience... And remitting our sin. And only believers in Jesus have that knowledge. You see, it starts with Jesus. This is Paul's message. Paul doesn't leave room for debate or question. He, he doesn't say, you know, I, I know that you might, you, I know that there are other ways you can experience this. He doesn't leave room for other options. This is it. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. This is the message that I came and preached to you with authority, and this is the message I'm about to write to you and call you back to. For the first two chapters, he really defends himself, and he sets up his own identity. In, the, in chapters 3 and 4, he begins to defend the message of the gospel. Justification by faith. We trust in Jesus Christ alone for our hope. And so Paul's message is a message of grace and peace. Not his own, but one he was sent with as an apostle. Paul's message is a message of freedom. You see, as he starts and writes this letter, he doesn't just simply, uh, you know, Jesus Christ died and, and rose again, and, and that's great, and we're, we're just, we just want you to trust it. There was a purpose for what 
Jesus came for. Jesus came and did this for a reason. Jesus didn't just come do it because he felt like doing it. Why does this verse tell us? Why does this passage tell us that Jesus came? To deliver us from the present evil age. We don't live this way most days. Most days we walk around thinking everything's all right. Hey, how you doing? Man, I'm great. I'm good. If we only could adopt this idea and walk with this understanding, every day we live, we are in desperate need of deliverance, of rescue. You see the word that, 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 that deliver is translated by, translated to? The ESV says deliver. It could also be translated as rescue. That's what Jesus came to do. It's this beautiful rescue mission. Paul's message is not a message that leads to, uh, it, it, it leads us out of the danger and the, the slavery that we're bound to. It leads us to freedom. It's, it rescues us from what we're bound to and frees us to what we were created to be. It frees us to be what we were created to be. Paul's message is a message of freedom. I mean, imagine what it says about the God. Imagine what it says about the God who we have rebelled against, who the, whose Scripture clearly shows that we want nothing to do with. But this God took it upon Himself to come into the midst of our mess and rescue us from, our, from, from ourselves. From the thing that we caused. I mean, it's as if we started a fire in our own house and we're stupid enough to sit there and let it burn around us. As if it wasn't going to at some point consume us as it was consuming everything around us. It's as if we're just standing in the midst of our mess and blind to it. He says that Jesus came in, gave Himself for our sins to deliver us to rescue us from this present evil age. You see, the reality is it's not just you. It's me too. And it's a world full of people who are fallen and dark and dirty and sinful. They're all standing in the midst of a burning fire and, and just too blind to see that it is consuming them and everything around them. And Jesus comes, sacrifices of Himself to rescue us, to get us and bring us out. And it's not a popular teaching today. There's a, there's a whole line of thinking that wants to do away with this idea that Jesus did something in our place or because of us as a substitution for us. But this is what the Bible clearly teaches. Theologically, it would be called, in theological terms, it's called penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus stood in your place and accepted your punishment to deliver you from what you deserve to get. To deliver you from what you deserve. To give you freedom as an extension of God's grace. As a part of the peace that comes with knowing God. He came in to rescue us. Paul's message, it's a message of grace and peace. It's a message of freedom. And the motivation behind this all, 
Paul's motivation, the thing that, that sends him to this, I'm sure at some level he's very concerned about these Galatians. I'm sure at some level that that is encouraging him to sit down and write the strong words that he's about to write. And he's going to be very confrontational with them. Paul, in this introduction, he, there's no niceties. There's, there's no, hey, I'm praying and thanking God for you. He's about to hammer them because they are turning from the gospel. I'm sure that his concern for them is leading him to write the things he's going to write. I'm sure that the sense of urgency that he, that he feels for them, these people that he loves and cares for, are binding themselves back to the slavery that the gospel has freed them from. I'm sure that that sense of urgency is driving him to sit and write this letter. But he clearly shows us that that's not the overarching theme or the overarching motivation for all of this. You see, he closes that little introduction and he says, he says, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Why? Because it was God's will. You see, Paul gets this in a way that we should all get this. He was motivated because God's will was to see these things happen. It was God's will that Jesus came. It was God's plan. It was God's purpose. It was God's provision. It was God's desire to see this happen. And Paul got it and understood it. And because it was God's will, he was fully on board. And nothing can be added to it. And nothing can be taken from it. This is it. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus gives grace. Jesus brings peace. Jesus leads you to freedom. Nothing else. You can't do it. There's nothing we have to offer. There's no religious right or tradition or order of life that we can maintain that gives us this truth. It comes through Jesus. Paul's motive is to align himself with God's will. For God's glory. Paul's motive, ultimately, the overarching theme, is God's glory. Don't point the finger back at me. Don't, don't tell me I'm the good person. In fact, at the point where he healed the guy in, in Lystra, the people began to praise him and teach or treat him as a god. And he goes out, he tears his clothes, he's in mourning, he tears his clothes, and he goes out and he says, Quit! It's not me. This is God's power. This is God at work. He deserves the credit. He deserves the glory. See, Paul's motivation in this letter, I'm sure in every other letter he wrote, was this. That God be glorified. Because God deserves the glory. It was God's decision before the foundations of the earth when he knew that man would rebel. To send the Son. It was God who said, I'm sending my Son. It was Jesus, the second person of our Trinitarian God, who came and hung on the cross, who allowed Himself to hang there. There was nothing keeping there, keeping Him there except His own choice. A desire to submit Himself to the will of the Father. That's it. At any moment, he could have called angels down to deliver him. At any moment, he could have healed his own body. He could have taken himself off the cross and condemned people right there. But he 
offered himself. He sacrificed himself. Because this was his choice. And now the Holy Spirit continues to reveal it. That third person of the Trinity continues to reveal it. Because God will be glorified. And deserves all the glory. And let me ask you these questions in closing. Where do you build your identity? What's your source of identity? I mean, are, are you just the task that you perform? Are you a changed person in Christ? Are you a converted believer, one following and chasing hard after Jesus because of the work that He's done in you? I'm just going to say this. That glorifies God. Standing as this job I do glorifies me. Being who God's created me to be and pointing all the credit back to Him glorifies God. Where do you find your source of identity? By what authority do you live? Are you trying to, to rule your own life? Are you trying to, in some way, build your own kingdom? Are, are you trying to set your own rules? Make sure that they don't contradict God's authority. Make sure that the authority that God's given you is in line with the authority that God has. What authority are you standing on? Are you standing on the authority that's been given by men? Are you standing on God's authority? What message do you have to share with the world? Uh, we, we find every day we find reasons to go and forward emails. We find reasons to go and tell people about something. We, we, we find things that are valuable to us. And we present that message to others. We want them to experience the same thing that we've experienced. I, I, did, I never, I never did, did very good with this, but at one point I tried to sell Amway. Just use this as an illustration. I didn't find it valuable enough to go and ask others to buy it. But I know that there's some who believe in the products wholly, completely. And they're out knocking on doors and doing everything they can to share Amway with the world. What's so important to you? What message do you have to share that every other person needs to hear? What message are you proclaiming? And really at the heart of all of this, at, 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 in the midst of all of it, I think you can answer it by answering this last question. What's your motivation in life? See, because I think if you'll get this right, the other things will kind of just begin to fall into place. What motivates you? Are you in some way trying to exalt yourself in front of people? Do you want them to perceive you in a certain way? And I just want to be liked. I'd just be happy if I had a friend or two. Is that your motivation? <laughs> I, don't, I, I got enough friends. That's not really me. No, I'm just kidding. Is that your motivation? Is it your motivation? To build some financial security. If, if I can just, if, if, if I can just get enough money in the bank. If I can just get the right house 
and the right car, then my problems will be solved. If I can just get the right job. And, and so I'm going to do everything I can, forsaking all other things to, to, to do this, to finish this job. My motive is to, to build that security in this world. Well, I think you're going to find your identity in your tasks. And I think you're going to find your identity in the size of the wallet that's in your back pocket. I think you're going to find your authority in what you say is right and wrong. But when you release yourself to live in the freedom of grace and peace with God, grace from God and peace with God, I think you can find a motive to see Him glorified. That you find then satisfaction. You know what? I only got 20 bucks in the bank. But God's glorified. He's still a good and great God. Because I still got 20 bucks in the bank. Now, my, my car broke down this week. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. But God is still glorified. Because the same God that's good in the bad or that's good in the good times is the same good God that rules in the bad times. You see, that same God, He deserves the glory. Because He holds it all together, He sustains it all, and He gives us the hope that we have to look forward to. The hope of eternal life with Him. What motivates you? When you start dealing with your motivations, I think the rest of those things will begin to fall into place. Ask yourself those four questions. Think about it. Let's pray. Father, you're good, gracious, wonderful, beautiful. We thank you for the work that you've done in this world, for the promise of salvation that you've given us through your Son. We thank you for converting us and making us new, not just... Not just adding something to us, but recreating us, giving us new birth, new life. Thank you for your goodness that's apparent in the world we live even when it's difficult. Would you show it to us? Would you reveal it to us? God, would you help us answer these questions of our own lives honestly and deal with them and struggle with them that we might find ourselves in a place similar to what Brent shared earlier, confronted with our own pride, our own arrogance, our own sin, our own desire to see ourselves exalted over you. Whatever the case is, God, show us, reveal it to us, call us to repentance. I mean, that we may walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.